0: One inherent challenge in row crop farming is that it needs to be completely reset every single year. So why aren't there perennial grain crops where a plant can get established and produce over multiple years, which would have major benefits to the soil while lowering the cost of production for farmers? Well, that's exactly what plant breeders like Dr. Brandon Schlottman are working on.
1: There's perennial rice being developed in China Last week I spoke with a group of researchers in Bolivia who are working on creating perennial quinoa. There's people starting to breed Kernza now in Europe and Canada. It's a global
0: movement. Kernza, which you heard him mention there, is a perennial crop developed by the Land Institute. In 2018, after working for the Land Institute for a handful of years, Brandon bought 40 acres of his own to start growing it and realized there were tremendous challenges and opportunities with building new markets for this brand new grain. So he founded Sustainagrain alongside co-founders Brandon Kaufman and Peter Miller.
2: We're kind of hacking things together, renting bins, renting spaces, finding new processors, finding new warehouses. And it's sort of a constant evolution of trying to get that dialed in. We're talking about the potential for
0: perennial grains like Kernza on today's episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. Hello, fellow ag nerd. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week you and I get to hear from the founders, farmers, innovators and investors, the people shaping the future of the ag industry. Today's episode and every episode this quarter is brought to you by the Soy Checkoff. It takes more than hard work to move a commodity. It takes a strategic plan and farmer leaders like you to implement it. And that's your soy checkoff. Whether it's finding new markets for oil and meal, investing in production research to help get more from every acre, working with the supply chain to impact your bottom line, having a sound plan delivers results. And you and your fellow soybean farmers are proving it through the soy checkoff. See all the ways your soy checkoff is moving soy forward for you at United Soybean. Dot org thanks so much to the soy checkoff for supporting ag innovation and the future of agriculture podcast okay back to today's episode with peter miller and dr brandon schlotman of sustain a grain now sustain a grain has a two-part mission to introduce consumers to Kernza perennial grain and to support family farms in growing Kernza. The team has been growing Kernza themselves for nearly five years now in close collaboration with the Land Institute where Kernza was first developed. they are certified seed dealers, handlers, growers, and they work with dozens of farmers across the Great Plains to grow and market this grain. They also work with food companies, restaurants, breweries, and distilleries to source high-quality Kernza. This is an interesting episode today about the potential for perennial grains, the implications that might have on the agriculture system, and what it takes to commercialize a brand new crop. And The problems might be different than you would expect. For example, Kernza has received a ton of press, nationally and internationally and excitement with some pretty big end user buyers, which sounds like a fabulous thing. And ultimately it is. But Peter Brandon and their third co-founder, who also happens to be named Brandon, have to find ways to build the supply chain in a way that buyers remain happy, farmers remain profitable, and supply and demand can grow together at a sustainable pace. And really, it's no easy task. We're going to talk about not only the research and breeding efforts that continue to go into this crop, but what it means for farmers, food companies, and the future of agriculture. Peter Miller, CEO and co-founder, has global agribusiness experience and previously worked for three early-stage startups, including helping to launch Farmlead's online grain marketplace, which later, I think, rebranded into Combine Ag. Peter has over 10 years of operations and private equity experience in the ag industry, and he holds an MBA from the University of Illinois. Dr. Brandon Schlottman, chief science officer and co-founder of Grain is a crop scientist who previously led cranberry breeding and domestication efforts at the University of Wisconsin and perennialization of edible legumes at the Land Institute. Shout out to the Growing Pulse Crops podcast, where I first interviewed Brandon about his work in Sanfoin, which is a perennial legume, super interesting crop as well. Brandon serves as the research director for a $10 million National Institute of Food and Agriculture grant for perennial cover crops and holds a PhD from the University of Wisconsin. I'll drop you to the conversation here where Brandon's talking about where this all started, the place where Kernza has been developed over the past 20 years, the Land
1: Institute. Yeah, so the Land Institute's a nonprofit ag research institution based out of Salina, Kansas. They've been there since, I think, almost 50 years, 1976. Sort of the dream of that institution and the major work that happens there is to create perennial crops perennial grain cropping systems and so Kerns is one of the many perennial grains that researchers there are trying to domesticate or create and so we've invested heavily at that institution in greenhouses and field research stations and things like that to focus mostly on breeding but increasingly on other sort of ecological kind of questions but it's very much a research-based organization. And the landsuits definitely tied into the sort of commercialization aspects of it. So, Kernza is a trademark name that's owned by the landsuit for the the grain crop itself. But there's something very different, I guess, uh, in being on the ground with growers, helping them. last night, I was I was in Hillsboro, Kansas, with a grower looking at. He's got three different of fields preparing for. You know which fields going to be harvested when? How are we going to keep the lots separate? Which lots needs to be tested? For which different food purposes. And so that's a very intimate, I think, relationship that that sustaining grant is having with the growers in this network. That's maybe an extension of what the suit currently is working on as a research institution. Cool, and this
0: may be time for the big question, which is why perennials? Uh, I mean, I think most people listening will know what a perennial is. Every other grain that I know of out there is an annual, it's grown, it completes its life cycle in one year, one crop, but a perennial would live for multiple years in multiple crops. So uh, I guess it's a two-part question. Why are there no other perennial grains and why is it important that we try to make them exist in the world?
1: Yeah, I'm gonna start with the second part of the question. You know, when we think about within agriculture, but also within urban planning and, and, you know, all the places where humans operate, we use perennials in buffer strips as erosion control, as a way to filter water, as ways to accomplish all these really critical sort of ecosystem functions that make sure that humans, us, have access to clean air, clean water good soil to continue growing things into the future. Those are sort of like the basic public goods that we might say all humanity is, should have access to. And perennials do that better than annuals. If you look at natural ecosystems, almost anywhere on the planet, and if you remember back to your high school science class, you learned about something called secondary succession, where you had some event happen. There was a volcano that erupted or a landslide. And the first things that came in, those are annual plants that quickly try to stabilize as much as the soil as possible, but they don't do it as well as these sort of long-lived perennial species that gradually move in through this successional process to what becomes a climax community. Those are long, those are forests, those are prairies. Those places are usually dominated by perennial diverse systems. And we want to recreate that in agriculture. We don't have that necessarily in agriculture right now outside of planting waterways and fields to reduce erosion or planting that buffer strips along sort of rivers and creeks and things like that. So we want to be able to produce grain crops like that and use the crops themselves to accomplish both sort of the productivity goals that we have. We wanna have high yields of grain that can be fed to, to humans or use for other purposes while also accomplishing sort of the conservation goals that we have as humanity as we move forward with the same exact species. When we look at the best examples of maybe conservation in an agriculture setting, we often think of the Conservation Reserve Program, the CRP program, where lots of agricultural crop land has been taken out of production. And what do they plant it to? They plant it to mixtures of native, sometimes non-native perennial species that do an excellent job holding the soil in place, building back that soil organic matter, filtering water, et cetera. So, we want to mimic the CRP plantings, but while producing a, a grain crop, the, the next question, if you want me to answer it, I think is much harder and it's probably just a hypothesis or a guess, but when you do breeding or domestication, so all the species that we grow, corn, wheat, they've all been domesticated through selection by humans over time and selection with an annual has to happen every year, right? Every year, the plant, you're harvesting the seed, it dies and you're gonna replant seed the next year. So you're kind of going through this natural selection process with the plants domesticating the humans and the plants together. With perennials, you don't get any of that selection that might result in higher yields in a sort of historic setting where humans might just be coming and harvesting seed from the plants and returning to the same spot every year. So you never really got to go through this replanting, artificial selection for better traits multiple times. Over 10,000 years, you can imagine how many times we did that with, with wheat, lentils, etc. So that's my hypothesis, but that's just a guess.
0: Yeah. No, it, and um, just real quickly, a quick follow-up on that. Of the annual crops we know today, the annual grain crops we know today, were any of them derived from perennial native plants or are all of them annual native plants when they started?
1: Some of them are probably weekly perennial or have relatives that were perennial. So maize, for example, there's zea perennis is a, a relative, a teosinte type plant that's perennial. There's tarwi, there's lupins from the Incan Empire. They were domesticated in South America. That their progenitor species is assumed to have been a wild perennial plant. So there's a small number, but most of them are, are annuals. Many of them are from the sort of Mediterranean environment where annuals were really, really common. It's one of the few ecosystems that had more annuals than the prairies here in North America, for example. Yeah.
0: And so Kearns has been developed over the past 20 years or so at the Land Institute since 2003, I understand, Uh, was the idea then to go back to those perennial relatives of grains we know and find one that might have some promise. And then rather than optimizing straight to how can we get the most yield out of it per year? It's like, how can we make this a sustainable perennial crop and, and just maybe go about the breeding process a different way? Am I characterizing that correctly?
1: Yeah, there's two ways, I think, to accomplish the goal. So, the, the way that has happened with Kernza. So, Kernza basically is the grain harvested from a species that has the common name intermediate wheatgrass. It's a already perennial species, and they've been domesticating it by making it have bigger seeds, higher yields, more free threshing. So, that's sort of the direct domestication pathway. The alternative pathway is to hybridize existing annual grains for example wheat by crossing it with a perennial wild relative species so at the land institute we also have a program that's crossing in this case durham wheat mostly with intermediate wheatgrass so with kernza to try to create a hybrid that has the grain quality traits of wheat while also having the perenniality of of kernza so there's sort of two approaches, and people around the world are working on both approaches simultaneously.
0: Hmm. Uh, so the Land Institute isn't the only
1: one working on perennial grains. Right. So there are, for example, there's perennial rice being developed in China. Last week I spoke with a group of researchers in Bolivia who are working on creating perennial quinoa. There's people starting to breed Kernza now in Europe and Canada, It's a global movement. Uh, I think it's catching on that perenniality is kind of the key long term to maintaining soils and ecosystem health around the world and all ag systems and the future of agriculture very much is perennial. Okay. Well, I want to
0: dive into that. But before we do, you know, perennial rice or even perennial quinoa seems like from a commercialization standpoint, a much easier lift than a brand new grain That many people have never heard of before in kernza Uh, so peter i imagine this is kind of where you come in what what initially attracted you to this kernza idea and um talk about how how do you make that heavy lift into actually developing a market in addition to developing a brand new crop
2: yeah the most attractive piece that i found in kernza initially was you know starting at the farm level the benefits to the farmer are Obvious and very attractive, also from a consumer's perspective. The question is how many consumers are actually making purchasing decisions based on that story? So it's a nice toehold into the market, the regenerative qualities of Kernza. But long term, the story that needs to be told is the fact that Kernza has high protein. 19 to 20% protein, you know, almost double that of standard wheat, the high fiber present in Kernza, and then the unique flavor. There's this nutty sort of warming spice, cinnamon and nutmeg that can come through depending on how you process it and how you cook with it. Those elements are, I think, what will continue to draw more people into Kernza and, and to perennial grains through Kernza how we go about bringing brands and consumers on board. It's a story of, you know, two steps forward, one step back and working with a lot of players. So we have university partners. We work closely with the Land Institute. You know, we're here in Kansas. Kansas State University um, is an important partner for us on milling science, for instance. And then working with research and development teams at various food and beverage brands have been very important for finding those nice applications for this grain that no one had heard of previously. So it requires a lot of invention at many points in the supply chain. It seems like in the
0: media, at least a lot of the stories are about beer. Now, is that because people love talking about beer or is that because there's something unique about Kernza that make beer a a path of least resistance to commercialization in some way?
2: yeah it, it really is a path of least resistance the food safety requirements for alcohol are much lower and so you know it takes a while for us to get all of the nutritional testing and setting up the supply chain for food products or beverage products grain going into that is a much simpler process and so that has has sort of driven a lot of that early demand but the more that it that it has been experimented with, the more people are finding that it has unique characteristics that they are purchasing for. So that flavor, again, uh, especially in distilling. So first it was beer. Now we're moving into a period where you're going to see a lot more kerns of whiskeys. And I think that part of the appeal of alcohol is that you actually have a label there to examine, to learn about, to hear the story of Kernza on a beer can where, you know, if you're eating a bread, you don't get that sort of storytelling. And that's a really important piece for educating people about the benefits.
0: And in the case of beer, are they using Kernza instead of barley? And is that how you continue to frame it when you're talking to food companies as well? It's like, okay, you usually use barley here or wheat here. And and we think that Kernza can add this extra element plus this whole sustainability, you know, story that goes with it.
2: So it is possible to malt Kernza uh, like you would a barley, but the, <laughs> the small grain size uh, where it is currently makes it difficult to do that at scale in a way that's not hugely expensive. So instead, what most brewers are doing is using Kernza as a flavor adjunct in addition to a malted barley, typically 20, 25, 30%. It's not um, ideal from kind of a volume perspective, but it is a really nice way of leaning into the flavor in an easy format for brewers to use.
0: And then for food companies, I imagine you're still kind of figuring out where the best uh, opportunities are for Kernza. I noticed that at least some places will sell like whole grain Kernza. What are people currently using it for other than beer? and, And how do you see that positioning rolling out?
2: Yeah. So there is... Whole grain kernza flour being used in pasta, in bread, uh, pastries, and crackers, and there is kind of rolled or flaked kernza being used in a variety of different granolas, breakfast cereals, breads, also, and there are even some folks who are sprouting kernza and then producing a, a sprouted flour from that as well. But there's still a lot of room for for discovery and experimentation.
0: You made a comment earlier that, you know, to a lot of farmers, the the benefits of growing a perennial grain are obvious. so to to some listeners, that may be true and to others that may not be true. Can you maybe talk about uh, the benefits to a farmer of growing something like this and, and what they may have to give up in terms of yield for a perennial rather than annual?
1: So I guess, you know, one way to think about it. We talk sometimes about modern agriculture as you know, a bunch of factory farms, but who wants to build a factory that you build it one time and you make the product one time and it all falls apart and you have to rebuild it the next year. This is sort of the idea of perennials with annuals grains. That's what happens. You have to replant and rebuild a whole new factory every year, all the investments and all the inputs with the perennial grain crop. You can imagine that you build the factory one time and yeah, there's some maintenance, but it's going to keep producing year after year, so I think that's that's sort of the the first example. And I think the you know the next example is there's this growing push to to have farmers plant more cover crops and things like that, and that's that's great, but that's introducing a brand new crop and new field operations every year. That's another pass with the the drill in the fall. It's potentially another pass with herbicide or tillage equipment to terminate it. And so those conservation practices require more effort from a, a farmer. And the case of perennial grains, it's a one time thing. You plant it one time and you're accomplishing both your economic sort of cash crop production goals and the conservation goals with the same crop in the same field at the same time. That doesn't mean there's no challenges, right? There, there still has to be markets for the crop. They still have to be high yielding so that farmers are experiencing some economic churn, especially in light of the sort of opportunity costs that exist for commodity grains, corn, soy production, and other commodities, depending on the location. But in many ways, those are present challenges that are overcomable in the future by continuing to develop new markets and equally important to continue to do the breeding at places like the Lannisoo to deliver new high yielding varieties.
2: And I would add that some of the ecological benefits that are unique to Kernza really relate to its root structure. So the roots of the Kernza plant extend over 10 feet below ground. So there's a promise there of better nutrient cycling, better water infiltration, potentially some carbon sequestration. And yeah, that's kind of unique to Kernza's, just its root structure, aside from the fact that it's a perennial.
0: And I do want to talk about yield because I, I assume that's always a, a question that farmers would have is, is kind of like, what what can I expect here? So uh, I guess a, a couple of different ways to attack that question. Number one is how long is this plant going to be in the ground typically? It, and is there like a yield arc where maybe the first year is not maximum yields, but then the next couple of years are and then maybe it falls off and you replant or uh, what does that look like?
1: The Kernza community is trying to grow Kernza all across the U.S. and into Canada. And every environment's different. So we're learning new things about how currents of production and the, the sort of timeline for the productivity changes in those different environments and under different management strategies. There's no, I think, one answer currently. But in general, we see that over time, the grain yields decline, especially if you're not actively performing management practices to try to prolong that yield to maintain the stability of the yield. There are growers that are trying new practices to try to diversify the income streams, the revenue sources from their field by managing it for multi-purposes. So one purpose is the current of grain harvest, the cash crop, but alternative purposes include utilizing the residue that's produced. And then in the fall and over the winter, the, the regrowth as a perennial, it grows back. And uh, there's a lot of producers, especially in Kansas and Nebraska that are using it for stockpiled forage over the winter for fall and winter grazing. I have a field that I planted in 2018, which I think is a good example of it. This year we had bad droughts throughout Nebraska and Kansas. And I made the decision this year to bail my currents of production up for hay in the middle of June, rather than letting it go to produce a grain crop. And I knew that as soon as I did that, that there was a great market for hay and that, uh, I could sell it and have the cash, you know, immediately if I wanted to. And so there's this resilience built into a, a crop like Kearns that has those multiple options as well. So that's a five-year-old field. And in places like Kansas where maybe the opportunity costs in dryland Kansas are not as high as someplace like an irrigated corn, soy rotation in Nebraska or Iowa. I can stomach using it as a forage crop for multiple years in a row. Uh, waiting for the, the right time when the rains return and we have you know a really good, good crop that year. So it's going to depend a lot on where it's at. And I would say
2: the age of a field is very dependent on each farmer's economic realities. So if you're maximizing grain production, then you probably only want to have each planting of Kernza in the ground for three years. And then you want to rotate out and come back into Kernza with some of the newest genetics. And and that's primarily because we're seeing such dramatic improvements in yield through the breeding program at the Land Institute, where each cycle of Kernza breeding is resulting in, on average, a 20% improvement in yield and additional benefits to naked seed, free threshing, and other characteristics that you're looking for in a grain crop. And, and where is that yield at currently? So right now, we, <laughs> we think about Kernza in terms of pounds per acre, and you're seeing anywhere from 250 pounds per acre to 1,000 pounds per acre. And if you imagine a 60-pound you know, bushel weight, we're only talking single-digit bushels mm. right
0: now. And, and Brandon, from a breeder standpoint, what do you think is is possible when it comes to yield or is that is that even a fair question to ask like i don't even know what laws of of uh, physics need to go into the thought process of answering of what type of yield might be possible in the future
1: yeah i mean i think if you all looked at the teosinte plant the wild plant that maize was domesticated from and thought someday we might be growing four or five six hundred bushel in some of these biggest you know yield competition stuff People would say you're crazy, and so I, you know, what's really amazing about kernza is that when we look at when we look at some potential yield components. So, for example, every wheat head, the spike has a series of spikelets on it, just like kernza does, and in every spikelet, there's multiple florets, which are the potential to become seeds. If you look at a kernza production field, there's plenty of florets available to produce yields that are equivalent to to wheat, if not better. The fertility is just not there yet, and so those are challenges that can and should be addressed and i 'm not going to claim that we're going to have the same yields as wheat in five years, maybe not twenty five years, maybe not fifty years, maybe not a hundred years and i'm I think in a way that's that's okay you know we look at how fast corn yields have changed, and if you go back to the early 1900s wheat and corn yields are pretty much almost equal, uh, and now corn is is skyrocketed and so I think there's a lot of potential. There's a study that just came out about Kernza, just a few plants in Kernza having more genetic diversity than all of annual wheat. So there's all this diversity that can be selected upon and can be improved in ways that, that wheat doesn't have that potential available, maybe in the same ways. So I'm confident it's possible. Yeah, uh, very
0: cool. Yeah, we just did a an episode on the history of kind of U.S. soybean industry. And we, we started in early 1900s when soybean was this obscure forage crop, you know, uh, and that, that was 100 years ago, which in the grand scheme of things is not that long ago. And they weren't even, they weren't even measuring yield of the bean itself. It was, it was just for forage. So it's, it's very interesting to see how these things can, can change and, uh, and evolve over relatively short periods of time. I mean, one lifetime, really, is pretty amazing well let's talk about you know the the delicate dance that you two and, and the other brandon need to do to like continue to grow the market for kernza but grow the supply enough that you can grow the market for kernza how exactly do you look at that problem and uh, what does that look like from a farmer's perspective you know who says i want to grow kernza okay do i just buy the seed from you and then you help connect me to the
2: markets or you know how does that look yeah this chicken and egg problem has existed from the very beginning for us in the early years we were approached by a national restaurant chain asking how much kernza we could supply and (laughs) what they wanted was like several times more than all of the kernza production in the country that year so we realized that not only do we have to be able to meet a one-off order but if we want to be taken seriously we also have to have inventory in place to guarantee that supply through a down year. And so we've spent some time building up that inventory, churning through that inventory and getting to the point where we can really deliver on major orders. And that has taken time. So I think that we have the supply piece starting to be worked out to where we have a nice cushion and. We can kind of project and bring more farmers in as needed. The tough part is developing the market demand, especially because people are seeing that the price is dropping because yields are going up. And so there's a lot of incentive to just wait. (laughs) And so we're looking for those early adopters to come in and say, hey, you know what? This is good enough. At this price, we can still tell a compelling story and have a, a good product. And then we can make up more margin in future years. But those are the kinds of partnerships that are really important at this very early stage of adoption. A few key buyers have included folks like General Mills, Patagonia Provisions, and folks like Kodiak Cakes, who recently developed their first Kernza product. And in each of those cases, it's a brand recognizing the long-term potential and making kind of an early investment. We're still kind of there, um, and we're trying to move to the point where instead of sending one-off orders, we're developing long-term monthly reorder systems uh, with major brands so that we can do real demand planning and bring farmers on in a much more predictable way. So right now we're holding off on most new growers, we are trying to expand acres as much as we can, but we don't want to put the cart before the
1: horse.
0: Yeah, um, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a grain guy from way back. I used to work for a grain company and, and merchandise grain and manage grain elevators. And I realize how much of a system is developed for for the established crops and how difficult it must be for a new crop to get you know, something as simple as a bin in a grain elevator dedicated to Kernza. That's got to be hard. How have you handled that part of thing, kind of the messy middle of the supply chain to make sure that those orders can be filled?
2: It's been a lot of bailing wire and duct tape. We are putting things together the best that we can. And that's that's what drove us to create sustain grain You know, as Brandon said, they were growing Kernza and then kind of realized that there was this missing piece. And so that's what we are trying to develop we're kind of hacking things together, renting bins, renting spaces, finding new processors, finding new warehouses. And it's sort of a constant evolution of trying to get that dialed in to the point where we're at a scale where it makes sense to invest in our own infrastructure in ways that would allow us to really drop the cost of processing and storage and pass that on to the end consumer. But until we get to that point, it's a lot of hacking stuff together. I'll give you one example. When we have you know, like a high value flour, we need to have it in a refrigerated warehouse. We have to ship that to Denver right now to a conditioned warehouse. And then in order to avoid pest issues, we've had to convert shipping containers into conditioned warehouse. So it's, it's, it, it's just, we're, we're, we're trying everything really.
0: Yeah, that's a a lot of work, a big thing to tackle, but certainly exciting. I I do want to take some time before I let you go to talk about what does this look like for a farmer? So, if I say I'm an early adopter, I'm interested, I think perennial grains definitely have a future and I'd like to get started on them today. Where does this generally fit in a rotation? You know, if I'm going to start small on, you know, 40 acres, let's say, where is this going to make the most sense for me to fit in the rotation? And then also, do I need to buy new equipment? Just the real practical aspects of like trying to just incorporate this into established farm
1: operation. So, yeah if if you're a farmer and you already have small grains in your rotation and the equipment to grow and produce them, you should be fine. You shouldn't need anything new. The only thing you might need is access to a way to dry the grain. Uh, in some instances, because it's a perennial, and there are green leaves and green stems when you're harvesting it, it can need a little air put on it in, in ways that you might not be used to for, for wheat or oats or rye. So yeah, that'd be step one. Step two, Maybe this is actually step one, Would is really you, you need to make sure that you have a market for it. So this isn't something you plant 40 acres of and hope that somebody somewhere is going to gonna call you and, and ask you if they can buy it. You need to be connected with partners, individuals, companies, et cetera, that you know you have a, a place to, to deliver it to. It's really new, so the storage is critical. You might be storing the grain for five, six, seven, eight, nine months, and it might take you six to eight months before you're ever paid for that crop, much more maybe like some organic markets, other specialty markets. You know, this is the thing about Kearns is it's so new that we don't really know where it fits. People are trying to fit it into their rotations in many different places. Uh, we've got people growing it after soybeans and in, in irrigated corn and soybean systems in the Platte River Valley in Nebraska. We've got people in Western Kansas growing it. Following soybeans works really, really well. You can no-till it in the fall right into soybeans, depending on your place. But some of the challenges with following other crops, we can have risks, especially in more moist environments of having aflatoxin contamination of the grain, following corn. If you try to plant it right after another cereal grain like wheat or rye, you're going to have a lot of contamination a lot of, of volunteer wheat and rye that come in and contaminate your grain that first year and that's a huge logistical challenge for for us right now is you know what do we do when we have contaminated grain like that is there a feed industry at all is it worth anything in that situation does it go from being worth a dollar two dollars a pound to being you know worth three four dollars a bushel in those sort of contamination states so there's a lot of risks a lot of things to still get figured out I'd say the the critical things are to make sure you do your homework, get connected to somebody that is buying Kernza, get connected to somebody that is helping other growers already do it.
0: Well, I want to give each of you a chance for kind of some closing thoughts before I let you get on with your busy day. Uh, but uh, I, I am curious if you could maybe include in those closing thoughts. You, you both seem more motivated than ever that a hey, perennial Grains are a big part of the future of agriculture, um, despite knowing intimately how difficult it is to get something like this off the ground. So I'm curious kind of what keeps you so convinced and committed, but also any closing thoughts that you want to either add or emphasize before we take off here.
2: Yeah, I think what keeps me interested is that constant innovation that's happening. The grain industry has developed some amazing tools and there are many people across that industry who have applied those tools to the same crops for years and they're very excited to unleash that innovative spirit on a new grain and the more that we can draw people into that the more that we will be unlocking new opportunities in food and in beverage and ingredients and i just get excited about kind of the constant discovery And then from a farmer's perspective, I think that there's an important piece to perennials related to climate adaptation. As we see bigger swings in weather, that establishment risk um, at planting is more and more a challenge. If it's too dry or if it's too wet, you know, it's tough to get into the field and plant at the right time. If you have a crop that's already in the ground and you know is going to come up, you've eliminated one really important part of the risk of farming an annual every year. I think it's a a good tool for farmers to
1: use for risk mitigation. Brandon, anything to add? Solving problems is always fun. So I think that's probably one of my motivations, but I think a larger motivation is that, you know, we, in the agriculture industry, no matter where you're at, we're also affecting ourselves the way that we do agriculture. So I live in central Nebraska, in York County, there's tons of irrigation. And one of the biggest environmental challenges that we have long-term is that we continue to have increasing levels of nitrate in our groundwater. And that's the, that's the water that, you know, there's a lot of rural wells that are the sources of water for families and their family farms have, have been there for generations. We see places like Grand Island, Nebraska, spending millions of dollars to put in new nitrate treatment facilities and increasingly new facilities to, to remove new things like uranium from their water, which are, are new problems due to the increasing levels of nitrates. And so, you know, when we think about some of the motivations we see in the media are often, you know, carbon motivations. We want to reduce carbon in the atmosphere because there's this, you know, the idea that that carbon in the atmosphere affects people globally. And many farmers will recognize that they have their own environmental challenges locally. And I think solving those local challenges is something that I enjoy being a part of, and that probably every grower in in one way or another recognizes and and wants to contribute positively towards. So I think perennial grains are one of the best solutions. Perennial grain cropping systems in general, including the perennial cover crops, are kind of one of the best solutions to some of these erosion and, and groundwater contamination challenges.
0: All right, well, that's going to do it for today's episode. Big thank you to Peter Miller and to Dr. Brandon Schlotman for joining me on the show to talk about Kernza, uh, perennial grains, and the future of agriculture. Go check out more about what they're doing over at their website, which is just sustainagrain.com. I'll leave a link for that in the show notes, as I always do. And a shout out and thank you to Dr. Audrey Kalisle, who produces the Growing Pulse Crops podcast, who recommended I get in touch with Peter and have them on the show. Very, very cool stuff. and really appreciated the thought exercise of thinking about okay let's just think for a minute if perennial grains were to really get a foothold and be established on a lot of acres if they could get that yield up if they have a lot more end users if they're successful with their mission at sustained grain you know what does that mean for inputs you know what does that mean for the way farms operate what does that mean for soil health and i think if you take some time here to to think about it uh there's some pretty big implications and you know maybe a year ago if you would have told me that the yields were as low as they are today i would have kind of written it off but after really diving into the history of soybeans for that episode it just has put things in a new perspective for me of of what's possible now granted it takes a long time but what's possible when you get people who really put their energy behind a cause like this so anyway if you haven't noticed that episode is really sticking with me a lot so i can't wait to do more history of ag innovation episodes as well that's it for today's episode thank you very much to our quarterly presenting sponsor the Soy Checkoff and last but certainly not least thank you for your time and your attention i don't take it lightly i'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation